it was actually a short week this week with Thanksgiving, and so I only had a couple days in the office, so I found myself preparing on the laptop and made Angel drive down to L.A. I was sitting in the back, working on the sermon with the baby, back and forth, back and forth, so I made it through. Why don't you open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4. And as you're turning, I want to talk to you about preparation. Preparation is certainly important in life, especially when you need to perform. If you have a game day or if some deadline looms, you need to be prepared to perform when the time comes. If you're going to do well, you have to be ready. This is certainly true in the athletic world. Football season, football teams and coaches, they spend the vast majority of their time preparing and practicing all for that one game day so that they can perform well. They spend hours reviewing the tape of themselves, their opposing teams, trying to find their strengths and weaknesses, going over plays, what to expect, part mental, part physical. With so much on the line, these players and coaches want to be as prepared as possible so that they can perform well when the time comes. Many teams in many sports realize how important this preparation is, especially the mental aspect. I'm sure you can... Work out, lift weights, stretch before the game, but if you're not mentally prepared, if your mind is not in it, you're not going to do well. Coaches now put their teams through relaxation techniques, allowing players to clear their minds, remove distractions, get totally focused on the task at hand. It's all about being prepared to succeed. Marathon runners know a thing about preparation. Especially important is their race day preparation. They know that when race day comes, it's it's not the time to do something new. It's not time for new shoes, new food, new drinks, new clothing. They just stick with their routine, their normal preparation, and they're ready to go. Some people, however, depend on superstition to help them for their big moment. Wayne Gretzky, uh, Wayne Gretzky rather, you all know him, the, the Hall of Fame hockey player, maybe the most superstitious athlete of all time. When he was out on the road, he would never cut his hair because the one time he did, their team suffered a, a major loss. During practice, he would start practice by shooting a puck to the right side of the net. Then he would drink a Diet Coke, a glass of water, a Gatorade, another Diet Coke in the exact same order. He would also put on the left side of his jersey first, and then he would tuck in the right side first. And then lastly, though serving no real purpose, he would always put baby powder on the blade of his hockey stick. And pretty interesting stuff. All in the name of preparation all in the name of getting ready to perform, when you know that that big day is coming, whether it's a game or a competition or a deadline or a project, some event that's going to take a lot lot out of you, you just need to be prepared mentally and physically. In a certain way, this applies to Christians. Christians know, or at least they need to know, that a huge event lies on the horizon. And that is persecution for the sake of the faith. Sooner or later, God says, it's not a matter of if, but when you will suffer for the name of Christ. You may not think this way, but you you need to, and you need to be prepared. You need to understand that if you're really living for the Lord, persecution is an inevitable reality, so you better get ready for it. You need to get ready to suffer so that you can respond rightly when it comes. Those not prepared are usually ones caught off guard when suffering comes. Ever been in a car accident? A car just sideswipes you, didn't see it coming. Just turns your world upside down in a heartbeat. And the same happens to some Christians, spiritually speaking. They get into a 
a spiritual wreck when suffering comes and it just sets them back. It, it stumbles their faith because they weren't prepared. And that's a huge shame because when suffering does come, the spotlight is on you. The world is watching you all the more closely when you suffer because they want to know, they want to see how you respond, how well you do when your God is not being so nice to you anymore. And when you are persecuted, you have your biggest audience, your biggest witnessing opportunity. But if you're not prepared and you respond poorly, you miss out on that. In 1 Peter 3, verse 15, which we studied several weeks ago, God, through the Apostle Peter, told us to be always ready to defend the faith. Today we have a similar message in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. To be always ready to suffer for the faith. you got to be prepared for this. We're here in this last section of 1 Peter, where the topic is now suffering. It will carry us through pretty much the end of the letter. Suffering, Christian suffering, mostly on account of the faith. It's going to happen. Suffering, that is. And yet he says it's better to suffer for doing what is right than to suffer for doing what is wrong. That's how he started off this section. Back in chapter 3, verse 17. It's very straightforward. He says, for it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Peter understands, though, this can be a hard pill to swallow for some. It, It can seem discouraging. To encourage us, then, he goes on to remind us of Christ's triumph over suffering, over sin, over evil itself. And that's a triumph we share in through him. Now, we may suffer in this life, but as Christ triumphed, so will we. And there's really nothing to fear then. Nothing is discouraging when we remember our ultimate victory in him. This was all from last time, chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Moving on, though, Peter, he's not only concerned with encouraging us with Christ's triumph over suffering, and how he wants us to embrace it. We are to take comfort and courage in the triumph of Jesus over all evil, but then we are also to rise to the challenge of imitating his example in resisting evil, even to the point of suffering. And think about this. There's two ways for Christians to fall. One is to abandon the faith, just to leave completely. That catches more headlines, but it's, it's really less common. Much more common is the second way Christians can fall, and that is to be morally compromised, to stumble back into that old way of life, to return to your former sins. This happens far more often, and really it's the catalyst for some people to leave the faith. They get re-entangled in their previous sins, and it just drags them down. Here in First Peter, he's speaking big picture. He's starting to talk about suffering in this last section, and these are his concerns because he knows suffering can tempt Christians to fall in these two ways. Suffering can tempt you to abandon the faith completely, just to check out. And that's partly why he writes chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, to encourage us in the faith, telling of our ultimate victory in Christ. There's no reason to abandon. We've won in Christ. But suffering, believe it or not, can also tempt you to fall morally. Sometimes persecution for the faith comes in the form of social pressure to return to your sinful past. 
When we think of suffering today, we think of the big stuff, like going to jail or being beaten or even dying. But but when Peter was writing this letter, that wasn't quite happening yet. That, That would happen. Early Christian persecution would really ramp up where people were being killed. But when he was writing this letter, it was more in the form of social persecution, where believers were being ostracized for their beliefs. They were being maligned for their practices. And they were being pressured, strongly pressured, to fall morally. That would be disastrous for their personal walk and their testimony, of course. But it was happening. They were stumbling. You ask why? Why was it happening? It's because some of these new Christians were not prepared. They became believers, but they just weren't prepared to face this newfound persecution for the faith. And when it did come, it took them down. They fell one way or another. That can't happen. And that's why, partly why Peter writes chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. To help Christians get prepared to face persecution and suffering so that they will not stumble and fall. For us, that's our game day. That, that's our big event when that day comes. And, and if you want to do well, you've got to be ready. You've got to be ready to suffer. With this in mind, let's go ahead and read now our passage for this morning. First Peter chapter 4, verses 1-6. through 6. Read along with me. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Pretty simple today from this text. I want to show you three ways to prepare yourself to suffer for the faith and still endure. Three ways to prepare yourself to suffer for the faith but still endure in the end. The first way is simply to have the right attitude from verse 1. Have the right attitude. Read again with me verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 4. He begins this new chapter saying, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. First way to prepare yourself to suffer for the faith is to have the right attitude. In this first verse here, it's building off of and going back to Christ's own suffering. And the key word is that first word, therefore. It's hearkening back and building off of the end of chapter 3. You have to remember, these chapter divisions and and the verse numbers that you see in your Bible, they're not part of the original text. When he was writing, he wasn't writing chapter 4, verse 1. That came later. Helpful additions, but not part of the original. So if you think, oh, today I'll just pick up 1 Peter and start reading chapter 4, in a sense you'd be missing out because Peter's developing a train of thought from before. His focus has been on the suffering and death of Jesus. 
Jesus suffered in the flesh, which was a reference to his death. Remember, chapter 3, verse 18. He was put to death in the flesh, dying on the cross. But paradoxically, the suffering of Jesus led to his greatest triumph. It's not normally what you'd expect, suffering and death to result in victory. But that's what happened for Jesus, and he knew it. He knew that would happen, that his suffering would actually produce his greatest triumph. And because of this, he prepared himself to suffer. He he accepted it willingly because he knew what it would result in. And now Peter's saying in chapter 4, it's true for us as well. We too may suffer in the flesh, even to perhaps that greatest degree, to the point of death. But if that happens, or, or when that happens, it's only going to result in our final conquest over sin. Death for believers, it's not failure, it's a victory. Through Christ, because of Christ, death, it's our triumph over sin as well. Therefore, Peter says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, it was not above him. Therefore, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. That's really the main command in in all six of these verses, to arm yourselves. It's, It's a military term used of soldiers equipping themselves, just strapping on their armor, getting their weapons ready. It's getting battle ready. Christians need to get battle ready. When you're here on this earth as a believer, you're not a tourist. You're not a vacationer. You are a soldier, and you need to be prepared. You need to get armed. Armed with what? He says armed with the same purpose. This word is derived from the word for mind. literally means the same way of thinking, the same attitude towards something. A clear command then is to arm or equip yourselves with Christ's same attitude, with his same way of thinking when it comes to suffering, which as we just saw, he was ready for it. He had an acceptance of it, a willingness to suffer and endure, even to death, because he understood what suffering would result in, his triumph. And you have to now share that attitude. That should be your way of thinking or approach to suffering. You need to be willing to suffer, willing to endure, knowing that it too will result in your greatest victory, your triumph over sin. That's what he says in verse 1. He says, arm yourselves with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. To cease here, it means to stop something, to bring an end to something. And it's in the perfect tense, envisioning a completed action with ongoing results. This is looking to that day when, when we too will stop sinning forever. This is looking to that day when we will never sin again. Of course, this is not achieved in life. This is only achieved in death. That's what Peter's talking about. He's using suffering in the flesh as a metaphor for death, just like he did with Jesus. And indeed, when we suffer in the flesh, and when we die, and we all will, we will finally cease from sin forever. We will finally be perfected to the fullest degree, never to sin again. In fact, this is how Peter ends his letter. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. Near the end, he says, After you have suffered for a little while, 
That's how he puts it, our life of suffering. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Same thing. And just think, for Christians, the worst thing that can happen to you is to suffer, even unto death. But again, paradoxically, that, that's also the best thing that can happen to you. Because it will result in your final victory over sin. Death, for us, it's not the end. It is simply the gateway to life, to eternal life, and to our end of sin. In this life, you can picture it like walking through a wilderness on a journey to, to get back home. and You're strapped with this bag of bricks on your back. You're forced to carry this bag of bricks. It's dragging you down. It's slowing you down. It's making you weary, but you can't get rid of it until you reach your final destination. When you do so, you can take that bag of bricks off and you have that instant relief, that instant rest. And that's what it will be for us when we reach our end and finally rid ourselves of sin forever. And the key to getting to this point that Peter mentions here, it's having the right attitude like Jesus did. And this is our first point. Just really be ready and willing to suffer Accept it, even embrace it just like Jesus did, knowing that God will accomplish great things through it. You know this, your attitude, your approach towards something is so essential to your success. Take school, for example. You've all been in school at one point or another. I myself have been in school for, sadly, nearly all my life. I did the normal four years of undergraduate school, then another three years of graduate for seminary, then another two years for another graduate degree in seminary, and, and it was grueling. It was grind. There was way too many sleepless nights. I'm so thankful it's over, but when you think about that, there, there's two ways you can approach something like that. You can approach it with a negative attitude where you just think to yourself, oh, I hate this. This is such a, a grind. This is miserable. I'm tired of this. I don't want to do this. I'll do it, but I just hate it. Or you can approach it with a positive attitude saying to yourself, you know, th- this is a challenge, but... I understand this, what this means for my future. This is where God has me now. And for, for whatever it's worth, I'm, I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to accept it, enjoy it, and do my best. Same situation, just two different attitudes toward it. And which attitude, of course, do you think will lead to success? Obviously, the one where the person that is ready and willing to accept hardship and knowing that it will bring about something good. And it's the same with you and your faith. Suffering comes and it will come your way as a Christian. And ultimately we will all suffer the same end, death. So how are you going to approach this? What attitude will you have toward it? First and foremost, you need to embrace this fate of suffering. Understanding that because of Christ and like Christ, it will bring about your greatest end. I can encourage you to approach it in the right way. If you can just think rightly about suffering when it comes, then you're getting set to endure it. You're, you're preparing yourself to endure. And that's our first way, to prepare yourself to suffer for the faith and endure. Have the right attitude. The second way now is to have the right resolve. From verse 2, have the right resolve. Look at verse 2 with me. 
Maybe we can start again in verse 1 just for the sake of the flow. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the faith, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the less of men, but for the will of God. So here's the thing. If you are a believer, you know what you have coming for you. You understand that you're a sinner. And that because of your sin, you've got a big problem with God because God is perfectly just and holy and he must judge sin. That's a problem for you because you are in that category. He has to judge you for your sins. Nothing you can do about it. You can't be good enough to outweigh your sins. You've already done the deed. He has to judge. But you also know that God in his grace, mercy, and love sent his son Christ to come to earth, live a perfect life, die on the cross, die for your sins, to forgive you, to free you, and that he rose from the dead securing that victory. And if you know this, if you understand this, you believe this, this is your your hope, your confidence, your boast, your, your trust, your commitment. If that's you, then God has promised you something in his word. He has promised you eternal life. John 6.47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Jesus himself said that. And that's what we look forward to now. And this coincides with what we saw at the end of verse 1. It's that time when we will cease from sin forever, when we will be made perfect. And we look forward to our eternal life. And that's, that's a guaranteed future now if you know Christ truly and have a saving faith in him. And that's good. That's good stuff. I want that. I want eternal life. I want to be free from sin forever. I want to look forward to that. If that's true for you, however, what does that mean for your life right here, right now? Some might think, and they have in the past, you know, God has saved me now. I guess that means I can just sin it up. I can just enjoy my sin guilt-free now. If I do something really bad, God, God will just forgive me. Right? He's already paid for it, so I can pretty much do whatever I want now. Not so fast. I, I trust most of you know the great inconsistency with this approach. I can spend an entire sermon on why that's wrong. But in short, just remember Romans 6.2, for example. And how shall we who died to sin still live in it? And the rhetorical answer is, of course, no, we can't. It's impossible. As Romans 6 goes on to say, Jesus died so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, so that we would be finally free from sin, not so that we could go on sinning guilt-free. That's not why he died. He didn't die just to give you a pass to go on and do whatever you want. In fact, one of the greatest blessings that comes with salvation is that freedom to finally be able to not sin and to actually please the Lord. Romans 6, 11 through 12 says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. He's saying, look, consider your new position. Positionally, you're dead. You're dead to sin and you're alive to God. Therefore, verse 12, live like it. Don't let sin reign in your body anymore so that you obey it. Rather, obey God. 
And back to 1 Peter 4, this same resolve, that resolve to be dead to sin but alive to God, is needed when it comes to suffering. Same thing. And that's where I'm going with this. First, we are to arm ourselves with Christ's same purpose when it comes to suffering, his same mindset, his same attitude. That's verse 1. Then, this should lead us to, verse 2 now, live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. That's what you did in your old life, that you lived for the lusts of men. That was your old self, vainly, pursuing the things which God judges. Instead, now you should be living for the will of God. And notice in verse 2 that it's a black and white contrast. The lust of men, the will of God, one or the other. There's no middle ground. There's no in-between. It's just pick. You're either doing one or the other. The second you step into the lust of men, you are stepping out of the will of God. It's just black and white. No gray area in between. But for the true believer, that's where you want to live now. You want to live in the will of God. For the will of God. This needs to be your resolve to live for God's will. You know, you're not perfect. You will stumble at some point into sin again. But here's the thing. When you come to salvation, you have this resolve. It comes with your saving faith to just to be done with sin. You turn on it. You turn against it. You hate it. You want nothing more to do with it. It may plague you until you die, but you are resolved against it. And that resolve is so critical. And bringing this back to suffering now, this resolve to live for God's will is essential in helping you prepare to suffer. And why is that? Well, when you suffer persecution for the faith, we'll see this in the next couple of verses, oftentimes it comes with the pressure to sin. Many times when you are persecuted, if not every time, you are going to be tempted to fall. Tempted to sin. And you know this. The world desperately wants to see you fall. They want to see you fall morally. And they will do their best to stumble you, to entice you, to tempt you. What's to keep you from from stumbling? The answer is God's grace working through your Resolve your, your commitment to seek his will and to live for his will. I gave you an illustration before about being a student. And it's good. It's good to have the right attitude toward your studies. But if in addition to that, you're not absolutely committed and resolved to graduating, to, to reaching the finish line, when the challenges come... What's to stop you from dropping out? You know, those questions will plague you when the, when the difficult times come. Now, why am I doing this? Why, why am I suffering like this? Why am I putting myself through this? Why don't I just finish? And if you are not committed and resolved to getting that degree, to helping your future, you have no answer, and you just might drop out. And it is the same when it comes to suffering for the faith. When the hard times come, those questions will plague you. Why am I doing this? Why am I suffering like this? Why am I being persecuted? Why why am I putting myself through this? Why am I sticking around? Why don't I just 
pack it up, leave this whole Christianity thing, go back to living like the world. All the persecution will end when I do that. Why, why am I here? Why am I doing this? And if you are not totally resolved and sold out to follow God and His will, you have no good answer. And you just might fall away. And that, of course, would be unacceptable. So therefore, you need to be resolved. In order to prepare to suffer for the faith, secondly, have the right resolve. How sold out are you for God and for His will? And get this, are you so committed to following God and obeying Him that you would even suffer to avoid sin? I'll say that again. Are you so committed to following God and obeying Him that you would even suffer to avoid sin. See, the point is, is you need to be so finished with your sin, so resolved against it, that you're willing to do anything, even suffer to live for God and to obey Him. If your answer is yes, then you are even further on your way to being prepared to suffer for the faith, which you will. The question is, will you be prepared or not? Have the right attitude, have the right resolve, Number three, the, the last way this morning, the third way to prepare yourself to suffer for the faith and yet endure is to have the right motivation. Have the right motivation. Having the right attitude is good. Having the right resolve is good. But just to push you over the edge here... To really help you prepare, you need some more motivation, some stronger motivation. Being willing to suffer, it's not a natural thing. And you need some stronger motivation. And that's what Peter gives us here in verses 3 through 6. Some stronger motivation. What we're going to see is both a motivation from the past as well as a motivation from the future. So let's start with this. Motivation from the past, verses 3 and 4. Motivation from the past. Look at verse 3. He says, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. Peter begins verse 3 with the word for... It's you know similar connector word showing he's building off of what came before. He's providing here some additional motivation for verses 1 and 2. Why should you be ready and willing to suffer? Why should you be resolved to live for God's will and not for sin? The first reason, the first motivation from the past is because you've already sinned enough. You've already sinned enough. You've already had your full share of sin. You don't need to sin anymore, even if it gets you out of some persecution. Specifically in mind here are those times when you are persecuted for not living like the world. He says, For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. Your experience with sin in the past It's more than enough. Even if you became a a Christian as a child, the short life you had living 
in sin was is long enough. Still, long enough. You served your time, however long it was, your time living for sin, long enough. It's like jail. It's like going to jail. Even one day in jail is too long. I think you all would agree. Just imagine this. You get arrested. They throw you in jail for a day. They come back the next day. They say, well, sorry about this. We got the wrong guy. You're free to go. But you reply back to them, actually, I think I'll stay here a little longer. Maybe a couple more days, maybe a week, see how things go. Who would do that? No one would do that because the time already passed is sufficient. It's more than sufficient. It's enough. It's too long. Who wants to spend more time in jail? And so it should be with Christians in sin. Who wants to spend more time in sin? You're free now. So why would you want to go back to sin? Why would you want to go back to living for it? Now is the time to put sin in the rearview mirror in your life. It's time to close the chapter on sin in your life. Some Christians have this itch to go back to their old way of life, to return to their old sins, even to experience all those sinful desires they never got to. It's like part of their heart is still devoted to sin. I'm not talking about the time when you, you stumble and fall. I'm talking about the person who just they, they're itching to get back to their old ways. And that's such a huge problem, of course. For one, God wants your entire heart devoted to him. But in addition to this, if a person still desires to return to their past, if they still want to taste sin, if they still desire it that much, just how well do you think they will hold up against persecution and temptation to fall and return to their old ways? Not well at all. I mean, they're going down. It doesn't take much for them to topple over. Instead, strong believers take a sober look back at their past before conversion, and they see the truly catastrophic consequences of their sin. They see it's not good. It's not worth it. It's not satisfying. It's not what I want now. This motivates them all the more to push on, to leave the old self completely behind, and even to be willing to suffer in order to avoid going back. That's a big point. Are you that motivated to not return to sin that you would even accept persecution to avoid it, to avoid going back? Because that's what he's going to talk about. Notice in verse 3, what the world lives for here and what we also once lived for. Six sins are mentioned. These are not the only sins in the world, but they certainly are sins of the world. These are sins of worldliness, of worldly desires. Briefly, first, there's sensuality. It says living without moral restraint. It's usually associated with people involved in sexual immorality. But it really could be said of anyone who indulges in their sinful appetites. I think the best synonym for it is simply shamelessness. Such people are, are embrace their sin with a shamelessness about them. Secondly comes lust. And that's actually just a general word for a strong desire. But here it's being used negatively to describe all those depraved cravings that drive a person to sensuality. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes combined together and really control the unbeliever. The next three come together on the list. Drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties. 
Drunkenness is drunkenness. It's where you consume too much alcohol, wine, whatever, so that you are no longer 100% in control of your mind, your actions, yourself. Carousing is usually what happens when a bunch of drunk people get together. And at these ancient festive gatherings, the drinking would spill out onto the streets and the partygoers would roam around looking for trouble. And the same pretty much happens today. Just go to any college town after midnight on a weekend and you will hear the sounds of intoxicated people outside roaming around looking for trouble. Third, there are drinking parties mentioned here. These are social gatherings where really the purpose for the gathering is to drink and to get drunk. And then lastly in this list in verse 3 comes abominable idolatries. In the first century Roman world, you have to realize oh, this, this sexual morality and this drunkenness were oftentimes associated with this misplaced worship of the gods. Now, Bacchus, for instance, was the Roman god of wine. To the Greeks, he was called Dionysius, but to the Romans, they called him Bacchus, the god of wine. And his followers would have these gatherings called the Bacchanalia, where they would worship with music, wine, drunkenness, sexual morality. Today, though people may not be worshiping the Roman gods, they're still very much preoccupied with idolatry, with worshiping something other than God, usually today, worshiping themselves. It's amazing when you look at this list, how similar the sins of first century Rome are with 21st century Western society. But that's what America is all about life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Happiness is what the world wants. They will pursue every lust to find it. But happiness is not to blame. Nothing wrong with happiness. The depraved heart is to blame, which looks for happiness in all the wrong places. God instead tells us that true happiness comes from holiness. It comes from following him, listening to him, obeying his will. There's a true soul satisfaction in God, which you can't find in these lusts of men, these desires of the world, wrongly applied. Now, here's where the persecution comes in, verse 4. In all this, he says, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. These unbelievers living in the world and living for the world, are astonished at the fact that you don't want to do this with them anymore. But when you come to Christ, you realize that all this time you have been, and these other unbelievers are, running headlong into dissipation, into depravity. It's like when you come to Christ, your blindfold is removed, and you realize all the while you had been playing in in an open sewer, thinking it was the ocean. You had been running into moral filth, and others are still doing it, and they still think it's good. But now you see it's just depravity. It's just dissipation. When you turn from that way of living, though, they don't get it. And so they turn on you. And be prepared for this. If any of you here are relatively new believers and you still have some, a lot of maybe unbelieving friends, just get ready. Brace yourself. Sooner or later, they will turn on you. Why? Because it's condemning. When you tell them you don't want to, you don't want to get drunk with them anymore. You don't want to go around with them anymore, doing this sin or that sin. 
You are implicitly condemning them for their sin. And they don't like that. They do not want to be condemned for their sin. They don't like it when you tell them one way or another, even if it's nonverbal, indirect, that they are living in sin before a holy God. So they turn on you. They malign you. They condemn you as a life hater. You, you, just, you just don't like having a good time. Uh, you're, you're so self-righteous. You're just holier than them. They slander you and your faith and your God all in an effort to justify your actions, rather their actions. The more they can tear you down, the more they can justify their sin in their consciences. In college, I, before I became a Christian, I joined a fraternity my freshman year. The whole nine yards, started drinking, all that lifestyle. Then I became a Christian a few months into that, and by God's grace, I turned from that lifestyle completely. But while I was in the fraternity, I stayed in for a while. There was another guy who was a Christian, and he joined as a Christian. Probably not a good idea, but nonetheless. He didn't drink. He was a good guy. But over about a year or two, I watched the other guys ridicule him and pressure him and make fun of him over and over again. And the difference is he wasn't prepared. He was not ready to handle that persecution for his faith as just a kid entering college. And by the time he turned 21, he was ready. He was ready to run headlong into drunkenness along with the other guys, and he did. He was just tired of the persecution, tired of living it up, and and so he fell. He started drinking heavily, eventually stopped professing Christ because he wasn't ready, in part, for what he was going to face. And it's easy to go with the flow. When I go out ocean kayaking, a new hobby of mine that I like out here, there's nothing better than going in the direction of the wind. When the wind is at your back, it's just effortless. It's a good time. But when you get a ways out and you've got to make it back into shore now and the wind turns so that it's coming against you, and this has happened to me, by the way, it's very difficult. And if you don't fight the entire way, the wind and the current can literally just sweep you out to sea. You have to do the hard thing. You have to battle against the current just to make it home, just to make it back. And it's really the same with the faith. What are you going to do about this? What are you going to do when persecution comes? It's easy to go with the flow. But are you prepared to do what is difficult all to avoid sin? Are you prepared even to suffer in order to not return to your old ways? You've sinned enough. Indeed, Christ died to free you from sin. And this really is your motivation from the past to help you live righteously today, even if it means you are persecuted, even if it means you suffer. The point here is you have to be done with your sin, the sins of your past, if you are to be truly motivated to suffer for the faith. This then is your motivation from the past. And finishing up here in verses 5 and 6, we have this motivation from the future. Motivation from the future. The first part of this future motivation comes in verse 5. Look there again. He says, But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will give an account. All those people who persecute you, who malign you, who seek to make you suffer, they will give an account one day to the perfect judge. Jesus 
is that judge. He knows all. He sees all. He's impartial. He's just. And no one gets away. Nobody escapes his judgment. He's sitting ready to judge, what's it say? The living and the dead. Just to mean nobody escapes, whether you're alive, whether you're already gone. Nobody escapes his judgment. Everyone has to give an account. There's something for you to hold on to and remember. In Christ, there's safety from this judgment. You pass out of judgment in him. However, if you give into these temptations, if you return to your old ways, if you abandon Jesus, then you too will have to give an account one day, and it will be far worse for you. Instead, however, just just cling on to him. Take comfort and encouragement in your position in Christ, where you are free from judgment. And just remember that all those who oppose you and the faith, nobody goes free. They all must give an accounting for their sins. Lastly, verse 6, he says, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Now, this is definitely not talking about going across the street here to the cemetery, digging up a corpse, and preaching the gospel to it. It's not what we're talking about here. This is also not talking about some second chance of salvation. There is no such thing as a second chance after death. Hebrews 9.27, crystal clear, is appointed for men to die once, and then comes judgment. That's it. You die, you're done. Whatever you believe at that point goes. Rather, this is talking about people who came to Christ at the preaching of the gospel but have since died when Peter is writing. And you may wonder, well, what, okay, what's this about? What's he talking about here? Why is he bringing this up? You have to realize that in these early days, these Christians were making some radical claims that were new in that day and age. Claims of new life, new birth, eternal life. Unbelievers ridiculed these claims. And when they saw Christians die, that was it. That was their proof positive that Christianity was of no benefit. I mean, look, you guys claim eternal life, but they're, they're all dead. They're, you're still dying. Christianity is, is of no benefit. But Peter writes, not so fast. The gospel preached to them has not failed, even though they are, in fact, dead. Even though they are judged in the flesh as men which was referring to their death again, just like before, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. They've passed away in Christ, but they're not really dead. They're alive in Christ, in the Spirit, in that spiritual realm. They're already with the Lord. And again, the point is, look, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? It's also the best thing that can happen to you, namely death. Death ushers us into the presence of the Lord. And the gospel doesn't fail. It achieves its victory even after death. So this now simply is our future motivation, helping us prepare to face persecution for the faith. Those who oppose us, they're going to have to give an account. They're not going to escape for their wickedness. And at the same time, for us, the gospel that we received, it's not going to fail. It will result in our glory as well, in our new life, even after we die. Suffering and persecution will come for all Christians. It's something you need to be prepared for. Having the right attitude, the right resolve, the right motivation will all help you get ready for that day. Also that you will not stumble, so that you will not fall, so that you will 
please the Lord. I want you to listen to this. I haven't made you turn to any passages today. I'll keep it that way. Just listen along. You can write it down if you like. Romans 13, 11 through 14. It's a very similar passage, but listen to this. Romans 13, 11 through 14. He says, For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is near. He's saying, look, we're marching closer and closer to the final day when we're truly saved, when we die and we're with the Lord. It's coming. Therefore, he says, therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. If that same battle imagery, because of our salvation, because the day draws near, put aside the deeds of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Verse 13, he says, let us Behave properly as in the day. Not in carousing and drunkenness. Not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Not in strife and jealousy. Very similar list of deeds of darkness to avoid. But, lastly, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Salvation is near He's saying, so hold on, don't give up, put off these sinful desires, and instead put on Christ. And that's what it's all about, putting on Christ. And I think Peter would agree. Jesus died for us. He left an example for us. He suffered and endured for us, and now it's our turn to suffer and endure. We want to be like him. We want to be with him forever. But first, we have to make it through this life. We have to endure So cling to him as your hope, imitate him as your model, and you will be rescued by him as your savior as you are prepared to endure whatever comes your way. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, Lord, we praise you for this word of truth that we get this morning. And help us. Help us to be prepared like we have Learn from this word in First Peter. We, we understand a slave is not greater than his master. Christ suffered, and we're going to suffer. For him, the cross came before the crown. For us, it will be the exact same way. You have saved us, but we look forward to that final day. And first, we must go through trials and tribulations. And I pray we can be prepared. Myself, all of us here, may we be all ready for that day so that we do not stumble and fall, but rather endure and please you and show the world what we live for and who our God is, how powerful he is to give us hope even in the midst of difficult times. For those who are suffering now and they are surely out there, Lord, encourage them in their faith. Help them to draw closer to you, not further away. May they not be enticed by their previous sins. May they remember that you died to free them and may they turn again away from their sins And just cling to Christ. It's the only help, the only rock in the midst of turbulent times is our Savior. Make make them cling to you and be encouraged and endure and help others do the same on the other side. We thank you for all these things. We thank you for Christ. Thank you for this church and all that we have. May we bless your name as we leave from here. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.